All right, good morning. Good morning. I'm actually going to sit down today. I know I talked about liking to stand up last week, but I'm going to sit down today. And I'm glad to know that we as Christians should not judge and that everywhere we go we should preach the gospel and every now and then use words. Those were the great wise words of Tim Tebow the other day at Liberty University. He addressed the chapel services and I see that over the years not much has changed at Liberty. When I went there we used to have the popcorn speakers on chapel day who would say things like that. I remember Newt Gingrich came one time and preached at the chapel service and told us that all men are children of God and that we ought to all love one another because we're all God's children. Um, so it doesn't surprise me uh, when a quote-unquote Christian gets into the spotlight, they often compromise. But our objective here today is to live by God's Word and see what God's Word has to say, not what feels good. And as we can see here with the message to the church at Smyrna, true believers, genuine believers, often suffer for their faith. Uh, they're not popular in the eyes of the world. In fact, Jesus said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you in Luke, because that's what they do with false prophets. So if you have a quote-unquote Christian teacher who never seems to be confronted with the chastisement or the mockery of the world and seems to be popular with the world, then you may just have a real problem. You may just be dealing with a false teacher. But it sounds like Tim Tebow needs to get out of the spotlight and get discipled by some real Christians and be out there on the front lines around the world and uh, confronted with uh, the needs around the world to preach the gospel. Maybe somebody could mentor him. Hopefully somebody suggested I do that on Facebook, but I'm sure he wouldn't have anything to do with me. But It's very sad, very sad, but... We attempt to confront these false teachings and this watered-down doctrine as we go through the book of Revelation. And uh, so much here, particularly to the message to the, in the messages to the churches, confronts these things uh, and, and, and tells us how we ought to respond and live in the face of apostasy. Uh, last week, um, I started uh, going through the message to the church at Smyrna. Ephesus was the backslidden church. Smyrna is the suffering or the persecuted church. This church existed in John's day. Types of persecuted churches exist even today. We had an example of that discussed in, uh, concerning Pakistan earlier. Persecuted Christians. And it's a picture of a stage in the history of the church as we shall see following the apostolic period up to the days of Constantine. Last week I basically got through the first two verses here in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We talked a little bit. Some of you weren't here. The message is posted online if you're interested. We talked about how the existence of the church at Smyrna proved that the early Christians uh, were about the Great Commission and missionary work beyond the ministry of Paul. This is a church not mentioned elsewhere in the Scriptures. And it showed that Christians were making disciples who were making disciples who were making missionaries. And the Gospel was spreading throughout the known world, beyond the ministry of Paul. Paul was the jump start or the spark plug. And so, even in Paul's day, it was said uh, that these Christians had turned the world upside down. Okay? So that's a lesson to be learned. We also talked about how the poverty spoken of uh, with regard to the persecuted church uh, was a reference to their goods being robbed or stolen as a result of their testimony. And we see an example of that in Pakistan where these Christians dwelling peacefully had their homes entered into, ransacked, and all of their goods were robbed or stolen. And that's usually a type of poverty 
that persecution uh, produces. But Christ said they were rich. These believers who had been robbed of their goods were rich in the eyes of Christ. And I contrasted that with the message to the church at Laodicea where they were rich in their eyes, in the world's eyes. But Christ said they were wretched, bore, wretched poor, blind, naked, and miserable. Um, we also talked about the persecution being authored by Satan as we see here and how, and, and we spoke a little bit about the difference between true and false Jews, between natural Jews and natural and spiritual Jews and how God has preserved a remnant of faithful Jewish people throughout the centuries and intends to do so until the end of time at, at, at which time He will fulfill the prophecies made to Israel. Um, we also talked a little bit about the strong words uh, that Jesus uses for um, the authors of this persecution, blasphemy. He uh, calls that the synagogue of Satan. And we contrasted that with some of the feel-good terminology we try to use or embrace with regard to false teachers today. Jesus used strong words, and we should use strong words when we call out false teachers and false teachings. And then last week I concluded with uh, some discussion on suffering in the life of the believer. Jesus told the church here at Smyrna that they would continue to suffer and that there would be an intense period of 10 days persecution coming. And so we, we, we uh, approach the question of why is it that the righteous suffer? An age-old question that is apparently bound up or seems to be bound up in the sovereignty of God. And then we looked at the types of suffering that Christians may or may not experience. The reasons for it as explained in Scripture. Sometimes it's disciplinary to get our attention. Sometimes it's preventative to keep us from pride or to keep us from a bigger problem. Sometimes suffering in the life of a believer may be educational, uh, teaching us something that we might otherwise never know. Paul talked about this in terms of his thorn in the flesh. Uh, Christ example uh, was it says that he learned, Christ the man learned obedience through his suffering. Actually, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh was to keep him from pride, so it was preventative. Um, Romans 5 tells us that tribulation gives patience, patience works experience and experience hope. And then maybe it just might be a testimony to a lost world. Sometimes the suffering of believers, maybe these believers in Pakistan who are robbed of their goods and driven from their homes, maybe that suffering is meant to be a testimony not only to the people of Pakistan, but to those of us here on the other side of the world who are confronted with that news and that knowledge. A testimony. The purifying fires of affliction finding a lamp of testimony so that it shines all the more brilliantly in a dark, dark world. Paul spoke of his infirmities. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was chased out of town, beaten with rods, whipped. All of these things he boasted in because he knew they were a testimony to the gospel. So that's where we ended last week uh, in Revelation chapter 2. Let's just read this, uh, these four verses again. Uh, beginning with verse 8, it says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Remember, Christ uses these references that were made to Himself in chapter 1 to highlight a, the specific situation to which each church is addressed. This church was suffering. It was persecuted. Christ reminds them that He too suffered and was killed 
but He's alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you might be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. So here in verse 9, where we're going to begin today, Christ is reminding them that I know you're suffering. I know what you've endured. I know the false teachers and the false Jews and their blasphemy. I know all of these things. But you are rich in my eyes. And then in verse 10, He, t- he gives them two exhortations in view of their suffering. And this would be Christ's watchword to any of us who are enduring persecution or suffering. This is what He commands us to do or not to do in the face of suffering. Number one, fear not. Fear none of those things which you will suffer. So in other words, more suffering was coming and Christ's command was to fear not. It's in the present tense in the original language which means stop being afraid. For the believer, God is the only one we should fear. And that fear is not a terror, but an awe, a reverential awe in light of who God is and what Christ has done. But cowardice and fear, my friends, is the mark of the wicked. It's not the mark of a believer. Christians living in fear, just like Christians who live in worry or anxiety, are in sin. Worry is a sin. Fear is a sin. Somebody this morning uh, look up Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1. Cowardice and fear, the mark of the wicked, not the mark of a believer. The wicked flee when no man even pursues them. In other words, their fear is in their mind. Look at the fear that runs rampant in our society today over everything. Over drones in the sky, over Afghanistan, over taxes, over Obama, over homosexuality. Fear, fear, fear over offending someone with the gospel. Fear everywhere. But the righteous are bold as a lion. A lion enters into a situation, he he undertakes the hunt, he crashes into a situation without fear. That's what the righteous are to be, without fear. Even in the face of persecution, we should be as a lion, bold. Speaking the truth even when men hate us. Preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Somebody read Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Notice the first category of people that find their place in the lake of fire. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first one listed there, the fearful. Another good way to say that word is the cowardly. The cowardly have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. There's a lot of people in this country today that would profess to be Christians but are cowards in every single situation they might encounter. Cowards when it comes to standing beside brethren in their convictions. Cowards so that they side with the world over the church. 
We need to repent of our cowardice and our fear. Jesus told the church at Smyrna, stop being afraid. Then He shows them that more persecution is coming. In fact, an intense 10-day episode. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil... Remember, the devil is the one that's behind persecution. He's the author of it. The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. First exhortation, fear not. Second one to the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death. Now up until this time, apparently none in the church had paid with their lives. But that was coming. And Jesus said, be faithful unto death. He did not say be faithful until death. That does not mean until be faithful until the end of your natural life. It means be faithful unto or in the face of death. Be faithful even when death stares you in the face. And thankfully, history pays testimony to many, many believers who in the face of burning, horrible persecution, in the face of watching their children fed to pigs or their wives drowned in rivers, were faithful unto death. And Jesus said, I will give you a crown of life. You know, when it comes to the church of the living God and the history of God's Christ's body throughout the ages, not Roman Catholic history, and in many ways not subsequent Protestant history, but the history of faithful remnant believers throughout the centuries, we would do well to repeat our history. Some have said Man who does not, men who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. When it comes to the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that do not know their history are doomed not to repeat it. And the sad fact today is many who call themselves Christians have no idea about the suffering and persecution that people experience through the ages so that we may taste and enjoy the freedoms and affluence that we have today. They have no idea. And they would gladly, gladly and joyfully compromise in the face of persecution. I was reading from a book last night about a man, him and his family were missionaries in Tibet in the 1920s. And some of the very places that we were able to visit there, he went and preached the gospel. And it's interesting, some of the photos taken in the 20s and 30s in that book of some of, of like parts of Lhasa or um, uh, over in Ladakh in Ley, those places look exactly the same back then as they do today. It's very interesting. But he had befriended a man... Uh, who was the chief of one of the wildest and fiercest tribes in all of Tibet. One day he was working on his house and this man showed up and wanted to talk to him and they became friends. And several years later, this man came back and said, look, I want you to enter into a blood covenant with me. And the Tibetans had this ritual they would do where they would cut their wrist and then they would let the blood mix. And it, it was considered the strongest bond of human friendship. And it was rarely, if ever, offered to a foreigner. And it made that person a member of the tribe. However, it was a very heathen ceremony in which homage was paid to gods and goddesses and devils. And so this missionary pondered for a moment. He knew he should not take this request lightly, but also understood that he could be no part of a ceremony that paid homage to the devil and to demons. So he responded to the man, Look, I'm a Christian. I can't take part in this heathen ceremony. However... Ceremony or no ceremony, 
you can always take me at my word and I will never betray you. And this chief who should have been offended, you know, that's at least what they teach us today during uh, missionary orientation. Don't offend. Anything you do is going to offend somebody. Instead of being offended, thought for a moment and said, you, you, you are a good man. He said, I want you to come visit my tribe and I want you to teach us of your religion because your religion is good and I think we need to know about it. And sure enough, this man, Victor Plymeyer, was able to preach not only there, but all across Tibet in the subsequent years. And I was reading that, I was thinking about how today, because of fear that infests the churches and infests the mission societies and everything that calls itself Christian, what would that situation have looked like today? The typical missionary would have reasoned to himself, I don't want to offend this man. I've got to build a relationship with him. God forbid he would be offended. So I'll just take part in this heathen ceremony. And in my heart, I'll pretend like I'm worshiping Jesus. And God will be okay with that because after all, everywhere you go, preach the gospel. And every now and then, use words, right? My, how things have changed. In the face of fear, Christians were bold when they took to the mission field. That was a bold move by this missionary. It risked him being ostracized. It risked suffering. But what did God do? God turned it in a direction that no one could have expected. And we see this through the history of the church where the blood of the martyrs was the actual seat of the church. And we ought to have learned our lesson. But sadly, most Christians today don't know their history. The Baptist church doesn't understand where it came from and the sufferings that were endured that men might have liberty of conscience and be able to listen to God speak to the conscience and draw them to Himself. Sad, sad, sad. But nonetheless, Christ commands His remnant, Fear not, and be faithful unto death. Now, do we really believe, as Paul said, that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord? Do we really believe, as Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain? Are we really pilgrims in this world as the Scriptures command us to be? Are we really... Are we truly at enmity with the world? and in love with God. If these things are so, then as I understand it, or as I see it, faithfulness unto death would just be the natural outflow of our beliefs and convictions. In fact, I don't think we'd have to try too hard to be faithful in the face of death if we really believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with God and that we're just pilgrims here on this planet. I believe God gives great grace in the face of persecution for true believers. His testimony bears testimony to that. And it's the out, natural outflow of our Christian life. Just like if we truly are trusting Jesus Christ for our salvation, something we cannot see, then naturally we would find ourselves trusting the Lord in the minor things of life. Usually, you know, when I, I've seen people, and I've been guilty before as well, of having real trouble trusting God for small things, but claim to be trusting Him for the big things. It doesn't make sense. These things ought to naturally flow from our convictions in our beliefs, just as it did here in Smyrna. Fearlessness, faithfulness unto death, those are the natural outworkings of the Christian faith. Those aren't the characteristics of special Christians. The things that Christ write to the church, writes to the churches here are not for special Christians. Remember, He said, To he that overcometh will I give this. John says, Who is he that overcometh? But he that believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the normal Christian. And these things are a natural outflow or should be of our beliefs and convictions, just like evangelism. 
If we truly believe that Christ is the only way and that people are perishing in hell without the Gospel, then naturally we would speak boldly and share our faith. These Christians are these self-professed pastors who are so afraid of offending someone and they want to apologize for every aspect of, of their faith. They don't really believe the Gospel. They don't really believe in hell. In fact, some of them are even admitting, them now, admitting it now. This wicked false teacher here I mentioned last week in Hickory, Josh McDowell, uh, has made the comment that he feels hell is a refining place. It's a place to refine people, to prepare them to spend eternity with the Lord. Well, that's nothing but the old rehashed Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And it's certainly not rooted in the Word of God. And it's the product of a coward. It's the belief of a fearful person, a cowardly person. Wickedness. Wickedness. What we feel or what we think does not take precedence over the Word of God. Jesus said here, Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The martyr's crown. A crown of life for those who are faithful in the face of death. What a reward. We don't understand exactly what that means or what it looks like. But the Scriptures do promise crowns to believers. It's interesting to look at some of the different ones mentioned in the New Testament. Here we have the martyr's crown, the crown of life. James speaks of this crown. He said, Blessed is a man when he endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord will give to those that love him. Paul speaks about a crown of righteousness to those who look for and long for the coming of Jesus Christ. He spoke of this at the end of his life when he knew his own martyrdom was coming. Paul was in prison and he knew he was about to be executed for his faith. Tradition says he was beheaded in the days of Nero. But Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy, demonstrating the very thing that Jesus was exhorting the church at Smyrna. 2 Timothy chapter 4 He says this, verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He knew his, the time for his martyrdom was at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Paul was at peace with his coming death. At peace, no fear. Looking for that eternal reward, that crown of righteousness. Do we love the appearing of Christ? Whether it be in our death or at His coming. Are we constantly longing or looking for that? The crown of righteousness is promised to those that do. The crown of glory in 1 Peter is promised to those who are faithful shepherds of Christ's body, the church. The shepherd's crown. Revelation 4, you see that uh, multitude in heaven throw their crown, uh, having the crowns of gold along with the white robes, the righteousness of the saints, the crowns of gold, evidence of redemption. Crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 is the fruit of a Christian witness. Paul spoke about how the, Thess uh, the Thessalonians were a crown of rejoicing to him. The fruit of His witness. Promise to those who are bold and share their faith. Then Paul talks about the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9.25 given to those who exhibit temperance 
in the race of life. These things ought to compel us, not that we receive some glory, but that we might have something to throw down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of the Lamb that was slain. Crowns of life and righteousness, glory, gold, rejoicing, incorruptible crowns. Therefore, we should be faithful without fear in this life, looking for the coming of Christ. Those of us who God has called to be shepherds of God's people, may we be faithful, not lording over God's heritage as some of these wicked false teachers and wimpy pastors do, but loving the brethren, demonstrating what we teach first by example and samples to the flock. May we live a life that shows evidence of redemption, evidence of what Christ has done for us. Ever a fruitful, faithful Christian witness and temperate in all things. That we might have rewards to cast down at the feet of the One who redeemed us. Back to, the, back to Smyrna. The devil said, I mean, Jesus said, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. The devil will cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. We don't know historically exactly what this ten days of persecution was in the time that John was writing in terms of that local church. But apparently some intense period of persecution came, and Jesus was preparing them for that. Then in verse 11, the first part of the verse... He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Again, we have proof that the application of this message goes beyond the local assembly of John's day. It goes beyond and comes straight to us. He that has an ear, let him hear. All that the church today would have an ear and hear what Christ said to these churches. No, this is never ever preached. The only thing that's ever preached is judge not. That's the only thing people like Tebow or Josh McDowell know how to quote in the Scriptures. Judge not that you be not judged. Twisted from its context and ignoring the clear witness of other Scripture. It's very sad. All that we would have ears to hear what's written to the churches. And in the last part of the verse, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Here we have an invitation and a promise to elicit a specific response. The church at Smyrna was promised suffering. They had suffering. They were given an invocation here and a promise to elicit further faithfulness in trial. He that overcomes, not special Christians, but genuine believers, will not be hurt of the second death. Somebody look up Revelation 20 verse 14 and also chapter 21 verse 8. Here we have the second death defined. Revelation 20.14 and 21 verse 8. Death and hell cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death is an eternal death. It's not hell. Hell's a holding cell. Hell's like the county jail. The lake of fire and brimstone is the second death. The wicked are raised to judgment and then they die again eternally. Not annihilated, but eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Not a refining fire. Eternal damnation. That is the second death. 21 verse 8. The fearful and unbelieving and the and murderers and come on 
Again, fearful, unbelieving, liars, murderers, adulterers shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. The second death is eternal. There is no escape. There is no resurrection from the second death. Daniel, in chapter 12, talks about that judgment. Two resurrections. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the second death. Someone read Revelation 20, verse 6, however. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Praise God that there is a means of escape from the second death. They that have part in the first resurrection... The resurrection to everlasting life is mentioned by Daniel here. Shall have no part in the second death. Our salvation is secure. It's secure. And that's why Jesus Christ is not religion. It's not good advice to make you feel better. It's not a hope-so salvation. It's a no-so salvation. And there is a means and a blessing for those to escape. You see, those born twice will only die once. Unless they're alive at the rapture, then they won't die at all. But those born only once will die twice. And from that second death, there is no escape. So in the face of the world's persecutions, in the face of our sufferings, we need to cling to the promise that we've escaped a second death. And that even though, just like Christ who suffered, died, and was buried, rose from the dead and is alive, so shall we be alive forever with the Lord. These persecutions here on this earth are just a tiny thing. Just a tiny thing, a speck in view of eternity. Therefore, we should not fear. So, Smyrna, a local church in John's day, facing persecution and told to expect ten days of intense suffering. And this suffering would result in imprisonment and death for some. Smyrna is also a type of the persecuted church at all times during the church age. Notice, as we highlighted last week, there is no rebuke from the Lord in this message. The Lord rebuked the church at Ephesus for having left their first love. He's going to rebuke the church at Pergamos for suffering the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He's going to rebuke Thyatira for its wickedness and Sardis for being dead. He's going to rebuke Laodicea for its lukewarmness. But there is no rebuke here from the Lord to Smyrna. Why? Because the very trials that afflict keep from impurity or compromise, as we'll see happens at Pergamos, and they assure a consistent fervency of testimony, something that had been lost at Ephesus. See, the fires of affliction, my friends, suffering, persecution, they protect us from compromise and they assure that we will remain fervent without rebuke from the Lord. Smyrna is also a remarkable description of the post-apostolic church from about A.D. 100 to A.D. 313. Who knows what important event took place in 313 A.D. in the history of the church? Anybody? Probably not if you hadn't taken a church history class. In A.D. 313, Constantine, the Roman emperor, issued what was called the Edict of Milan 
the Edict of Milan officially ended pers uh, government persecution of Christians in the empire. In other words, it was an edict of toleration. And it made Christianity one of the official religions of Rome. And from a surface perspective, that was a good thing. But as history later bears testimony, it was a wedding of the church with the world and resulted in compromise. If it's true that the suffering church was from about A.D. 100 to A.D. 313, then the ten days mentioned here in the Scriptures must be a reference to something. It must be a prophetic reference to something. If this is a prophetic reference to that period. It's interesting that John Fox in his Book of Martyrs notes ten specific periods of persecution that took place under the Roman emperors. Official persecutions proclaimed and carried out by Roman emperors. These began with Nero in around A.D. 67. That's the time Paul, maybe Peter, died. And it ended with Diocletian in the, in, uh, 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 up until 313 in the, in the proclamation of that edict of Milan. So there were ten official persecutions of Christians um, proclaimed by Roman emperors. So that could be a reference to what this is speaking of prophetically. Or it could be referring to the ten years of horrendous persecution, the worst of all, that was initiated by Diocletian in AD 303 and then ended in AD 313 with the Edict of Milan. So secular history bears testimony, as it did with Ephesus, to the prophetic fulfillment of this during those two centuries of the church. In fact, during the persecutions under the Roman emperor, the Christi Christianity and the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it was during that time that the scriptures were vociferously copied, preserved, and translated into a multitude of languages. And within 200 years of their writing, the Scriptures had disseminated throughout the known world. A variety of languages. Copied time and time and time again. Protection against corruption. So these people who want to come and claim that these lost books of the New Testament are something we should read or that they contain the truth are foolish. These things didn't survive. These things were not... Uh, recognized as Scripture because they weren't copied. They weren't translated. They weren't disseminated like the books of the New Testament. And that dissemination, that copying in the face of persecution is what actually protected the Word of God from being corrupted. I was thinking this morning how let's say that someone wanted to claim that John F. Kennedy uh, performed miracles and as a result, the world hated him. And then he was assassinated, but he rose from the dead after his assassination down there in Dallas. And here we are about, what, uh, 60, 50, 60 years later. So somehow we've got to convince the world, including many people who were alive at that time, that he actually rose from the dead. So we're going to write some things and we're going to kind of insert it here and there into historical accounts. Do you think it would be possible for someone to pull off a hoax like that. Why not? Are there people alive today that saw that on TV? Yeah. There's plenty of people still alive that live. How many thousands of historical accounts 
are found in various sources about that day, or that assassination, or even about his life that don't record any miracles or anything like that. It would be virtually impossible only 30, 40 years later, 56, even today, 50, 60 years later, it would be impossible to pull off a hoax like that. But yet the liberal scholars and the fake pastors and those that question God's Word would have us believe that within 40, 50, 60 years of Christ's life that people were able to pull off a hoax like that and corrupt the Scriptures and put things in there about a resurrection or about miracles that never actually occurred. When Christians who were being persecuted were preserving these teachings and continuing to preach them, copying them, translating them left and right. It's ridiculous. Many of these people, 50, 60 years later, were actually alive and walked with Jesus Christ. Young children maybe that sat in His lap. John the Apostle was alive up until A.D. 100, 70 years after Christ was killed. That in and of itself, the preservation of the Scriptures, the distribution and copying and uh, publishing of the Scriptures throughout the known world in the face of horrible persecution at the hands of the Roman emperors is testimony enough that we're dealing with the supernatural, that we're dealing with more than man's attempt to preserve man's thoughts. People couldn't get away with it today. Why do we think in the early church that a few guys came in and corrupted some stuff and then fooled the whole world and somehow got their corruptions into all of these copies, into all of these languages? In the face of persecution. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Secular history does bear witness to the suffering of the church in the 2nd and 3rd uh, centuries up until Constantine's Edict of Milan. Polycarp. Polycarp was a famous early Christian. He was a bishop at Smyrna and was a pupil of John the Apostle. When John was an elder in, 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 in the, at the church in Ephesus in his older, latter years, his elder years, Polycarp was one of his pupils. And he became the pastor or the bishop at Smyrna and was so for many, many years after this letter was written to the church at Smyrna. When he was a very old man, he was burned at the stake. He was asked to recant and said, if you'll recant, old man, we'll, we'll preserve you from this fate. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served the Lord and He has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? So Polycarp must have been real old because he claimed to have been serving the Lord 86 years. So even if he was saved as a child, he was probably at least 90, 90 plus years old. John Fox has a short account in here of the death of Polycarp, which took place around A.D. 160 under the fourth official persecution under the Roman emperors. Polycarp, hearing that persons were seeking to apprehend him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. Remember, this is the pastor of the church at Smyrna. From this circumstance and having dreamed that his bed suddenly became on fire and was consumed in a moment, he concluded that it was God's will that he should suffer martyrdom. He therefore did not attempt to make a second escape. Those who apprehended him were amazed at his serene countenance and gravity. There was a similar situation in the Scriptures where the captors, the persecutors, were amazed at the countenance of someone they were about to kill. Who was that? Remember? 
Who had a countenance that just really stunned? Stephen. His face was like an angel in the face of his stoning. Those who apprehended him were amazed at his serene countenance and gravity. After feasting them, in other words, he, even, he knew they came to get him. He knew they showed up at his door to get him, but he provided them a meal. He desired an hour of prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and conducted to the marketplace. Wood being provided, the holy man earnestly prayed to heaven after being bound to the stake. And as the flames grew vehement, the executioners gave way on each side, the heat becoming intolerable. In the meantime, the bishop sang praises to God in the midst of the flames, but remained unconsumed. Determined, however, to put an end to his life, the guards struck spears into his body when the quantity of blood that issued from the wounds extinguished the flames. After considerable attempts, they put him to death and burnt his body. Twelve other Christians who had been intimate with Polycarp were soon martyred thereafter. So that's the type of persecution that the church at Smyrna faced, as did many Christians in those early centuries under persecution from the Roman emperors. Now the sad thing is, as history would continue to transpire, the same persecution suffered at the hands of the Roman emperors would be suffered at the hands of the Roman popes. You see, the Roman Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Empire, the Caesars, not that much different. In fact, we'll see next week when we look at Pergamos that the same demon spirit that was in Nimrod and at Babel and down in Babylon moved to Pergamos when the Babylonian priest kings fled Babylon when the Persians conquered. They moved to Pergamos and set up shop there. And then Pergamos was deeded to Rome when the last Adelan priest king died and that same wicked spirit went to Rome and manifest itself in the Caesars and in the popes. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has a heritage. Wicked, false religion has a heritage just like Bible-believing truth. Bible-believing truth goes back to the apostles, Jesus Christ, to the prophets, and to God Himself. False teaching has a heritage too. False teaching... All religious false teaching goes back to Babylon, goes back to Nimrod, goes back to Satan in the Garden of Eden. Which heritage are we embracing? What happens when persecution disappears in the lives of believers or in the life of the church? What happens? All we've got to do is read the next letter. The letter to the church at Pergamos. You see, Pergamus was settled down in the world. Pergamus was married to the world. When persecution disappears from our life, we are so apt to become friends with the world and to compromise. So the next time we suffer, even in a minor way in our society, thank God we don't have to face the things that Polycarp and others faced throughout the centuries. But even minor suffering might just be protecting us from compromise. Romania, up until the late 80s, was under a dictatorship, a communist dictatorship that in some ways was uh, at odds with the Soviet Union, uh, but in other ways was an ally. Uh, there was a dictator there, uh, Nick, uh, I think it was Nikolai was his first name, Ceausescu, a wicked, wicked man. 
him and his wife, his wife hated Christians and instigated persecution against the church that really didn't end until Ceausescu and his wife were executed in the late 80s as a result of the Romanian Revolution. But anyway, with the death of these wicked leaders, the persecution in Romania subsided. I don't know if some of you ever heard or read about some of the things that the Romanian Christians underwent even as late as the 80s. Um, there was a man who wrote a book, Tortured for Christ, that talks about his sufferings in the Romanian persecutions. His name escapes me at the moment. Uh, Well-known uh, uh, preacher, I think he was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. Anybody know who that was? Tortured for Christ, I believe, was the name of the, um, the book. Richard Wormbram. Richard Wormbrand. Horrible persecution. I was speaking to a Romanian fellow a couple years ago who talked about how when the persecution left, the churches got settled and compromise began to creep in and the fervency that once existed there in Romania that resulted in evangelism and missions had subsided, had gotten quiet. And compromises set in. I saw a little bit of this when I visited Romania a few years ago. Fortunately, one of the churches we worked with was still on fire for the gospel. Some of the elderly folks had seen persecution and these young folks had a passion for evangelism and preaching the truth. But I also saw how the churches were buying into all of this garbage coming out of America. Rick Warren and his books had been translated into Romanian. Everybody was looking for some new truth out of America. And I told those believers in that church, stop reading everything that comes out of America. Stop searching for truth or some new understanding of the Scriptures from America. I said, we've never endured the persecution like you folks have. And most of what comes out of America is garbage these days. Maybe it didn't used to be that. Purpose-driven life is garbage. The purpose-driven church is garbage. Half of these preachers on TV that you think are great servants of God are false teachers and devils. I said, God's given you a Holy Spirit. He's brought you through persecution. He's given you your own leaders. He's given you the Word of God. Seek the truth through these avenues. Look to your pastors. Look to, look to the Bible first, but look to the leaders God has given you and quit seeking some authority outside of your own sphere of influence. Look to the Holy Spirit and His convictions. Don't let the absence of persecution lead you astray. I had the great privilege of sharing that as one who had never really suffered persecution. But it's true. What's happening in Romania is a reflection of what happened in the church years ago when the persecution stopped. When Constantine brought toleration to the empire, proclaimed himself a Christian, he knew that it was politically expedient, brought the Christians and the pagans together. In Rome, they'd been worshiping Venus, burning incense to Venus. Constantine just changed a few names. Now they started burning it to Mary. It was the same devil spirit. Just changed the names. The church got married to the world. And the Bible calls this the error. It talks about it in terms of the, 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 the uh, uh, error of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, the way of Balaam. And we're going to talk about this a little more next week. So we've got Ephesus, the backslidden church, Smyrna, the persecuted church, and next we'll deal with Pergamos, the worldly church. Any questions about any of that? I hope that was encouraging to you this morning. We're not quite
quite as late as we normally are, so uh, I'll just conclude us in prayer and then we can go eat. Again, this message will be up later online, or last week's as well, if you want to catch up. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to heed your watchwords to suffering believers, even though we may not be suffering at the present time. Lord, may we fear not in our daily walk, and may we be faithful unto death, no matter what this world may throw to before us. Thank you for the persecuted brethren around the world today who are an example to us. They may not even know what a testimony they are to us, Lord, those believers in Pakistan. I pray that you would deliver them, help them to be faithful in the face of the Muslim mobs and those that hate them. And may that faithfulness be a testimony to those that seek their lives, just as it was to Polycarp's captors, Lord, some of whom repented as a result of his faith and his testimony. Lord, I don't know what you're preparing us for here in this country. I know the days are dark and it seems that we are on the eve of some persecution. That being so, may we heed the words to your church. Have an ear to hear. Lord, thank you that through Christ we can escape the second death. May we love people enough not to conceal that truth, but to warn them, to warn them, to present to them the escape, to share with them Jesus Christ regardless of whether or not they're offended. Lord, that is true love. Without dissimulation, may we have that. And if you do allow or choose or will for us to suffer, maybe to lose our homes or our lands or our families or, or even our lives, Lord, give us the grace we'll need to be faithful. Thank you for the food that you've provided today, Lord, a true blessing. May it give us strength and nutrients. And Lord, we look forward to the time we can come together to fellowship around your word. I pray for those that are not with us today. Some are out of town. Some are sick. Lord, minister to them. Pray for Don and her family as they prepare for this funeral, Lord, that it, the death of one of your children, again, would be a testimony to a lost world. All these things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.